Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Today, we have Dr. Mantu Gupta, who's the site chair of urology at Mount Sinai West and a St. Luke's professor of urology in New York City. Uh, I thought it'd be an interesting topic to discuss with Dr. Gupta, uh, the, the title dealing with COVID-19 in New York City, a urologist perspective. Uh, and just a, a quick sentence of a background uh, in the heat of the battle in April of this year, 2020, uh, I called him to get an idea of how he was managing COVID in his hospital, because I felt that we were uh, perhaps next in the, in the struggle of, of dealing with this uh, pandemic. Um, and he has some very poignant uh, comments and some advice that I really took to heart. And I felt that the first podcast in this series that might be very relevant to just get a perspective uh, of this disease and how urology is affected. So Dr. Gupta, really thank you so much uh, for, for being here and um, uh, very interested to hear what you have to say about, uh, about what you experienced. Yeah, thanks, Brad. I, I vividly recall that uh, your phone call to me. And around that same time, just before that, um, I was actually doing another podcast for Marianne Liebert. And thank you again, Marianne Liebert and, and Richard Wolf for sponsoring this series. Uh, and uh, I had invited uh, or... Marianne Liebert invited Guido Giusti from Milan at that point to come and join us in a podcast. And um, not that he was upset or anything, but he emailed me back. He goes, looks, I'm doing more important things right now. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic in Milan and there's dead bodies everywhere. Um, they're piling up. We don't know where to put them. So I don't really have time to be a internet doctor right now. <laughs> That's the last thing on my mind. And that must have been must have been amazing to have the Italian perspective and the New York perspective, uh, yeah. you know, colliding right there. Two two countries that were uh, you know very very affected. Yeah, and at that time we weren't really hit that hard, so it was hard to understand exactly what he was dealing with. I mean, I understood and I felt very bad what was going on, but I couldn't personally attach myself to it until it started happening to us in New York City, and it was just a matter of a few weeks where we had the same experience they've had almost as bad, if not worse. And then I ended up, you know, talking to him again and saying, look, we're, we're getting the same thing. Now I really understand what you were saying that really there's nothing else you can think about all day long, all, all night long, other than this pandemic and how we're going to manage it. So did, leading up to, um, you know, the, the February, March timeframe, and then kind of the, the thick of things in probably mid to late April, I guess, do you feel that your hospital had a had a plan and, and, and did they kind of have an idea of what really they were in for and, and what kind of leadership did you experience? Was there any type of indication that you guys were really, really prepared for this? Absolutely not. I mean, we weren't prepared one bit. Um, it hit us like a brick wall and none of us were prepared, but we were, uh, we had great leadership and managing the situation. Um, so before we knew what was happening, um, it was hitting our ORs and hitting our, uh, our wards. Uh, and the first thing the hospital did was try to, of course, segregate the patients who were 
testing positive for the ones who weren't. Uh, but the number of patients who were in the hospital that weren't COVID positive rapidly decreased. The first thing that went was elective surgery and elective admissions as much as possible. And so it came to a point where 80 to 90% of the patients who were in the hospital were COVID positive patients or suspected uh, of having COVID disease. Uh, so we had to adapt quite rapidly. We had to shut down our ORs as much and OR open them just to COVID patients. We had to convert our recovery room to an ICU because we ran out of ICU beds. And uh, we had to make the units closed units so that no one can get in and out of the units without donning or doffing protective gear. And I think those were, that was the key to controlling this was making sure everyone else, the, the nursing staff, the physicians, uh, the ancillary support, all the people who carry food trays in and out, housekeeping, that though everyone adhered to the rules of proper, pronic, uh, proper donning and doffing of their PPE equipment. And actually that's where urology played a big role. Um, for our hospital, uh, I, I got the position where we would be the ones managing who got in and out of the wards that were COVID positive. We're the gatekeepers, so to speak. And we sat at the entrance and we wouldn't let anyone in unless they properly donned and doffed. Why did they specifically pick urology to be you know, more or less the triage officers for that? Well, you know, other services could more directly help in the ICUs and the wards. ENT had airway experience and uh, of cardiology, of course, could help a lot, pulmonology. But as, the, as a urologist, we're not trained to do critical care. We're not trained to deal with airways. Um, that's not our thing. And so um, we thought, how can we help and do it proactively so that we wouldn't be assigned to areas we didn't feel comfortable. And some of us were, some of us definitely were assigned to ICUs, uh, but I said, well, let's be proactive and see, do something we can do that we can make a real big difference. So we did 12 hour shifts where we would sit in front of the COVID units and making sure everyone who got in and out did things properly. And the tough, tough people to control actually, the police were actually physicians themselves because they would go on the elevator from ward to ward thinking they could use the same gear from one place to another without regard that they may have contaminated that what they were wearing. So we had to force them to take things off and put new things back on when they went in. And so early on, uh, you know, one of the questions I really kind of had in my mind was, you know, what, at what point did you really realize you, you would not be a urologist for a while, but it almost sounds like you, uh, you and your team proactively decided that, you know, there's no way we can be a urologist based on the environment and situation. Let us choose where we can best fit our skills and, and, and our brains and our, you know, organizational skills. And that, that sounds like what you did. You weren't necessarily, there were some reassignments and things like that. And, but it sounds like you were proactive in, in the, uh, in that manner. Yeah. And yet you still had patients coming to us, right? Uh, Cause emergencies don't stop because there's a pandemic. So we still have patients with epididymitis and um, you know, torsion and other things that had to be managed. So what we ended up doing in the office is that we assigned one person a day who would be in the office taking care of emergencies, a different person every day. And so we didn't have a lot of urologists in the office. We had one or two medical assistants, one or two, one or two secretaries and one urologist that would handle the emergencies and a different one every day. So we all minimized our exposure that way. And the rest of the week, we were helping in the wards and um, also doing tele telehealth visits, 
which we had to invent on the fly because really there was no infrastructure for doing telehealth visits at the beginning of the pandemic. And they had to come up with, uh, with solutions, digital solutions to allow us to do the telehealth visits, which they, Epic did a tremendous job uh, as well as Doximity and other platforms that came along in allowing us to still communicate with patients. And really that saved us um, monetarily, but also allowed us to communicate with patients uh, without having to put them at risk or ourselves at risk. Back in April, there was really no, not only no widespread testing, there was virtually no testing at all at that time. So you, when you had one person go in and out, you basically had PPE and you washed, you maintained some sterility, some cleanliness, and then you went home. And then the next person came in and replaced them the next morning. There was no testing, no nothing. Were they all quarantined or describe that? Yeah, I mean, the quarantine was very important. I mean, what, uh, what was frustrating is that you heard on the news that Abbott had this uh, test and other companies were developing these tests and these tests were now available. And you'd hear this on the news, but we didn't have these tests. You know, I don't know who had the test, but we didn't have them right away. And uh, so we couldn't test ourselves, uh, let alone the patients. We just had to assume a lot of times that they had it. So that was very frustrating. And we had to quarantine unless, you know, unless proven otherwise, anyone who had symptoms had to quarantine. Uh, and that was the only way to do it. So it was a daunting task. Actually, you know, what we did recently was we looked at our, what we did with urology patients and especially endourology patients during that time period. Uh, and one of my residents went back, um, Beth, I'll give a shout out to her, Beth Edelview and my fellow Jonathan Cusid. They went back and looked at what we experienced during that time period. And what they looked at is specifically the period of March 15th, which is when the pandemic was hitting its full stride uh, to May 31st, 2020 and compared that with the same period the year before to look at what we were doing uh, in terms of ED visits and stenting patients who had emergency who had emergency requirements for stenting. And what we found was um, that there was a drastic decrease in the number of patients who were presenting for emergent stenting to the hospital. So during that same time period in 2019, there were 51 patients who were stented in the operating room and only eight patients in 2020. So a, a drastic decrease in the number of patients. So these patients were basically withholding care. Um, they weren't going to the emergency room unless it was death. And some patients actually died at home trying to avoid the emergency room with a septic stone. We had a few instances like that. Wow. We, we looked at a system, a risk stratification system called the Modified Early Warning Score, MUSE, um, and we used a mu score of greater or equal to four to indicate that the patient was sick. Um, and that's a 75% sensitive and 83% specific for surgical patients who require admission to a critical care unit. And what we looked at is the mu score in these patients and we found the mu score was significantly higher. 87.5% of our patients were high risk in 2020 compared to only 31% the year before. So these were we were stenting very, very high risk patients. But what this means also is that a lot of patients were avoiding care and, and uh, they were just weren't coming to the hospital. And one way we are managing this is in, we started stenting patients in the office, which I've always done. I've stented patients in the office for years, but we, our number of patients we were stenting in the office increased sixfold during the pandemic. And I was stenting two or three patients a week in the office, obstructing stone, we wouldn't send them to the emergency room. We would just stent them right there. 
And of course, we didn't have anesthesia service available, but we generally just do it under local anyway. Um, and surprisingly tolerated very well. But this is this taught us something. This says, you know, next time this hits or a second wave hits, we need to be prepared better this time. And we should have the infrastructure to be able to put stents in the office. And maybe other offices should do the same thing. So we're publishing this in AUA practice uh, so that we can disseminate this information and get that out there. People should have guide wires, stents in their offices, ready to go just in case uh, something like this hits again. Just a matter of technique as an aside, are all these done with flexible scopes then? Yeah. Yeah. I solely use flexible scopes in the office anyway. And we do have, we're lucky enough to have a C-arm in our office so we can um we can you know do it under fluoroscopic control uh instead of blind uh, but i used to do it blind in old days many years ago when we didn't have fluoroscopy available in the in the office um you get a little flash and you know you're past the stone yeah we have a we have a fluoro table and cysto table in our office as well so we're, we're equipped to do the same thing it's a very very convenient to have you know when you're going through all that i think probably the maybe not one of the last things on your mind but certainly maybe a little distant are you know, the educational aspect of your residency. I mean, you, you still have a, you still have residents, fellows, medical students, depending upon you to, to, you know, provide them career pathways, et cetera. Uh, when you're going through all of this, what, how did it affect the educational aspects of the residents and fellows? How did it affect potentially new residents starting in July, which uh, was, you know, when you're at the peak of your April, early May, it was only a couple months away. And then how does it affect your recruitment of medical students and, and now leading into our interview season? Uh, just kind of speak to maybe the educational component of, of, of the effect of this. Yeah, sure. I think there's a very, very um, big impact on education. Uh, let's start with medical students. Um, so as soon as the pandemic was hitting its stride, um, the Icon School of Medicine, uh, which is the medical school from Mount Sinai, had the medical students uh, stop doing clinical rotations. So there were no medical students on the wards at all. Um, they just wanted to protect the medical students and not unnecessarily expose them, which makes a lot of sense. Um, they're not providing a critical role in the care of patients. At least we didn't, they didn't feel they were. And so um, unless they were a sub-I or like a very late medical resident, uh, medical student, um, the earlier ones did not do clinical rotations. The, some of the ones who are already clinically adept toward the end of their medical school training, uh, the fourth years, they were in some places, including ours, escalated and served as interns. And they were actually given designated intern titles and accelerated their graduation in a way on paper so they could serve intern roles because we had such a shortage of uh, medical uh, residents on the floors that they actually served as residents. Uh, but the education, uh, other, I mean, they learned a lot from being in the ICUs and on the wards, of course, uh, you know, trial by fire, but their regular education in terms of urology was decreased. We were able to do with some of the sub-I's that were supposed to come on, um, we gave them research rotations that were virtual. So we assigned them research projects they could do, um, and a lot of them wrote uh, COVID pap papers on COVID-19. Uh, and so actually, our academic productivity during this time increased dramatically. We, public, we pumped out uh, 60 papers among the entire department on COVID uh, in the last few months. Uh, and part of that was driven by medical students. And residents too, the residents, um, many of them were deployed uh, in different wards, but 
but there was no elective surgery, of course. So their training, surgical training, suffered during this period of time. Of course, we've rapidly made up for that since then. But during that period of time, their, um, their training, the didactic lectures, all that uh, changed quite a bit. We adopted, as we're doing now, Zoom. Uh, and Zoom was a tremendous boon in order to communicate with each other as having faculty meetings at least once a week and just some camaraderie there, but also communicating with residents and having all our lectures, educational lectures, which would always be in person, and our grand rounds, which continued uninterrupted despite this, uh, were continuing. So that part of education actually changed a bit being on Zoom. We found Zoom was a tremendous platform uh, for educating residents and students and conducting grand rounds. And in New York, I don't know if you heard about it, but there was a lecture series called the Empire Series that um, was put together uh, by partly by, uh, by the New York uh, neurological uh, community uh, and many, many faculty members gave lectures that were meant for all residents in the New York area. Uh, so I gave a few talks and a lot of our faculty gave talks. And now we had residents and faculty from throughout the New York City and tri-state area participating in these lectures, which we never had before. So it brought us together in a different way. Um, and the education actually, in some ways, improved because of it. Sounds fantastic. Your, <clears throat> your uh, resilience and, and ability to be flexible and all that is, is still pretty amazing. Did anyone in your department ever end up having COVID, uh, COVID-related illness, or at least what you thought may have been COVID? Yeah, I won't name names, but, um, but uh, two of our faculty ended up in the ICU with COVID. Oh. Um, one quite serious, the other one more as a precaution so that he wouldn't deteriorate uh, further. Uh, luckily, both of them made full recoveries and several others have te tested positive but had variable symptoms from very mild symptoms to severe symptoms, but did not have to be hospitalized. But two of us did have to be hospitalized. And, uh, you know, that put everything in perspective. Sure. And, and so are you guys back to, you know, are you back to quote kind of this new normal where clinically, educationally, you're really back uh, on, let me say, full gear, but with the restrictions, with, with the remote learning and the Zoom conferences and the a lot more telehealth visits and things. You're still back in the OR, the residents are still in the OR, they're still rounding. Uh, you have really kind of a full schedule with the obvious new pandemic era limitations in place. Yeah, actually uh, that's absolutely true that we adopted this new method of education with the, with the Zoom education or similar platforms. And I think it's here to stay. Um, so we haven't gone back to in-person meetings, either faculty meetings, or uh, educational seminars or, or grand rounds and resident lectures. They've all been now remote, which has been great uh, for education. And I think it's gonna stay that way. Uh, and our telehealth visits, which reached a peak of 60,000 per month in the month of June, uh, now is trickled down to about 33,000 a month. But the last three months have actually remained stable, around 30 to 35,000 visits a month in the system. Uh, so it's actually not decreasing further than that. So it's off its peak, but it's maintaining. So I, I think there will be some drip downward, but this is something here to stay uh, long-term, these telehealth visits. And, and that's the whole Mount Sinai system or the Mount Sinai urology system? That's for the whole Mount Sinai system. Okay. Yeah, we're not that prolific. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you guys are busy. <laughs> Have you been able to track the urology numbers? Are, are they continuing to trickle down? Because we, we experienced a very... Similar, you know, April, May, we had a, 
a very, very large telehealth presence. And now the school has maintained really, you know, a fairly decent trend, but urology has, uh, for whatever reason, we've kind of plummeted back down to in-person uh, clinic visits. Yeah, I'd say it's probably similar for us. Um, we were the first, one of the early adopters of telehealth visits, and we, we um, zoomed up very quickly. We went from zero to 20% to almost 50% of our visits or more being telehealth visits very quickly, within a few weeks, um, much faster than other services actually uh, adopting that technology. But other services are a little more amenable to, to that type of a visit. Um, ones that are more discussion-based, psychiatry, for example, has maintained a very, very high level of telehealth visits because I guess they realized that the in-person wasn't as important for what they do, maybe for other services where we really need to examine the patient or see them. Uh, dermatology, for example, probably uh, you know might be one of those. But I think uh, for us, we've gone down a little more than other services have, but we're still doing a, a large number of telehealth visits. I'd say my practice, um, I'm doing about four, four to five telehealth visits a day still. Very good. Well, uh, before we get a couple closing comments and uh, thoughts from me, Montu, I, I just have, I guess, one more question, which is really kind of a, uh, you know, current events question. And it seems like, you know, the United States is going backwards again. It sounds like New York has really weathered the storm pretty well compared to a lot of the regions in the United States. I can tell you the Midwest right now is, is under a a very significant uh, uh, second wave, if you will. Um, what are you guys prepared? Are you are you just lamenting the whole thing? Are you just completely, oh my gosh, what are we going to do if this happens again? Or is it you're prepared and you're ready and you want to take it on and move forward? Well, I mean, I think the New Yorkers are very resilient and we got hit really hard. It was a gut check for us. And I think if you if you went into the New York, if you went into Manhattan. Uh, two months ago, three months ago, it was a ghost town. There was no one on the streets. And anyone you did encounter on the streets had a mask on. We took this very seriously. We got hit hard. We learned our lesson. We took it very seriously. And we're maintaining that, which I think has been responsible for our relatively low rates of infection currently. But there has been an uptick. And it looks like a second wave may be coming, but we're fighting it. And you know, where the governor recently announced that, uh, at least in New York City, restaurants have to close by 10 p.m., bars have to close by 10 p.m., and that was a big uh, super spreader of disease, that and gatherings, social gatherings, weddings, bar mitzvahs, things like that. So curtailing those types of activities is going to be crucial to keeping the second wave at bay. I don't think we're going to go through this uh, a second wave, even if it occurs anywhere near what had happened the first time. We're much better prepared. We already have contingency plans on how we're going to convert the ICU, I mean, the recovery room into an ICU. We've trained nurses who are OR nurses, how to be ICU nurses already. Uh, so we're prepared. We're ready in, in case something does happen. Well, I sure hope you don't go through it again, Montu. I, uh, when I spoke to you, I got off the phone and that was uh, kind of a chilling uh, phone call, uh, just some of your comments. So I guess uh, in my closing, I certainly want to leave the last word to you, but I... Um, I truly uh, respect you and your, your faculty, your residents, uh, all your ancillary folks, your support staff, uh, what you guys endured and what you uh, have accomplished. And, and just again, the, the, the research and publication efforts that you wanted to share with, with the rest of the, the world about how you performed and how you uh, managed this pandemic. Uh, 
I think just from a urology perspective, I, I guess we should thank you and, and we should really uh, be very respectful to uh, your experiences. So uh, thank you very much for, for doing the podcast and thanks very much for having uh, some time set aside for this. But I certainly welcome any closing remarks or comments that, that you might have, but uh, thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you, Brad. And again, thank you, uh, Marianne Liebert and Richard Wolf for allowing me to share my experience and hopefully people can learn from it what we went through. And my only advice, my last parting comments are, I have advice for the rest of the country that um, this is something that we can weather and we will weather. It can be done. We are, as a country, very strong. Uh, we have uh, a lot of resilience in us and we don't let us anything get us down. And we have to have faith uh, that things are gonna pull through. Don't rely totally on the vaccine. Don't rely totally on, you know, uh, on, uh, on what our leaders are telling us, take your own initiative, do the PPE. I think it's crucial uh, whether a vaccine's approved soon or not and goes and gets into production soon or not. Um, we need to be prepared and we can weather this one way or another. Great, thank you very much. Good luck, stay safe. And uh, I look very much forward to meeting you in person someday. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too, Brad. <laughs> okay.